And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Allocation Disorder, take two for this episode. <laughs> I'm Sam Stasekel, he is Paul Tenorio, and Paul's computer crashed. So we're, you know, recording this again. I think we got 10 minutes from the finish line, and it was kind it of a long episode. It crashed after like 57 minutes of recording, an, an entire episode, essentially. Yeah, so, you know, hopefully this one will be a little more streamlined. Hopefully we will trim the fat and get straight to the good stuff. Although, I will say the fatty part of the steak is kind of the good stuff. But, you know, that's a personal preference. You know what I'm saying. you got to have some marble on it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Love some marbling. Love that. Um, anyway, we have a lot to discuss on this show. Um, we are going to talk about some USMNT stuff, some potential way too premature, uh, but maybe not so premature roster stuff for the World Cup. We are going to talk about um, a little bit more about qualifying now that it's it's done, it's dusted, the U.S. is going to Qatar. Uh, just some impressions and questions from the octagonal that was and the next seven months that will be before the tournament begins with the U.S. grouped against Iran and England and one of Ukraine and Wales and Scotland. And then talk about a few other things as well happening in the MLS universe, Portland Timbers, Andy Polo, some resolution there um, in the last week or so. But Paul, I wanted to start with some soccer. Soccer. Um, the Seattle Sounders in New York City FC, they played their Champions League semifinal first leg on Wednesday night, last night, as we sit here recording on Thursday afternoon. And I just wanted to shout it out because it was a real nice game of soccer, which we don't always get the treat of. Um, but this one was high level. I thought the Sounders were excellent. They won three to one uh, at home and they're in good position now. Although New York City FC is certainly not out of it heading back into their home leg, quote unquote, at Red Bull Arena next week. Um, with the winner advancing to the winner of Pumas versus Cruz Azul. Pumas with a 2-1 edge after the first leg of their semi on Tuesday night. So I just want to start with that match. I thought it was great. What did you think of it? I know you watched it as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought it's exactly what you said. I thought it was an entertaining game. It was a, an attacking game. There were It was open. Two very good teams. Two of the best teams in MLS. And really what stood out to me was the chemistry of Seattle. And when a team is playing that way... It was very free-flowing. It was very pretty. They understood where each other were going to be. It led to some really pretty attacking movements and to a few really nice goals. Yeah. And I think it highlighted, Sam, I think it highlighted their front six and the, the, mm -hmm. the way that they can beat you through numerous players, not just through Rui Diaz or Lodero, who weren't even that great last night, but through Jordan Morris, through Christian Roldan, through Rusnak. They... It was it was fun to watch. Jao Paulo as well. It's been super influential for them, carrying on his form from last year into this season. Um, I mean, for me, two of the things that really stood out were the were the play of both Roldans down the right hand side. I thought they were yeah. relentless. Um, our our buddy Matt Doyle made a good point, in my opinion, about just the chemistry that they had down that flank, um, constantly popping into good spots, 
constantly covering each other, really just complementing each other really nicely. And then Ruznak playing as the eight next to Jao Paulo, right? It, maybe it's not the most defensively robust midfield pairing possible, right? If you put Christian Roldan in there, maybe it's a little bit more, uh, maybe it's a bit beefier, a bit more athletic perhaps. Um, but in terms of ball progression and retention and movement and just being able to set the tempo of a match, those two I think are going to be really hard to beat. Uh, when it comes to MLS midfield pairings. And I think we saw that last night. I think we saw it to an extent in the Sounders game at Minnesota over the weekend. Um, And I'm really interested to see how that progresses over the course of a season, especially if Christian Roldan continues to play as he's been playing on the wing, and especially as Jordan Morris continues to round into better form, presumably coming off still his major injury. And Rui Diaz and Ladero, you know, presumably round into better form being the best two players on that team, which, you know, they've, they've been banged up both of them so far this season. So if they can get back to their heights, then this team could really be flying. So yeah, I thought it was a really good game. And I think whatever team advances, and this is still very much a series, by the way, NYCFC getting that away goal was important. And they're a team that, you know, as Maxi Morales presumably comes back, that they could absolutely beat Seattle by two at home next week. But I think regardless of who advanced, I like their chances against Pumas or Cruz Azul in the final. Um, certainly more than maybe MLS, any MLS League MX final in CCL history. Your boyhood club, Pumas. Yes. Vamos Pumas. Um, I don't know. I, I, like, I like that. I like those uniforms, man. I like their state. I like their vibe. I like it. Pumas so maybe, is a cool name, too. Maybe this is like a natural transition into our next portion of this segment, which is talking national team. But is Christian Roldan, despite being on the roster... For the the last qualifiers, is he like the mm-hmm. biggest USMNT snub right now? You know, it's funny because I'm glad I'm glad you brought this up because the first, uh, I guess it's it's faulty to call it a recording because it didn't get recorded. That's the, why we're doing this again now. But after we spoke about it last time, I was like, man, we should have mentioned Roldan in the segment because what we're about to do, a lot of the US roster, and you've seen projections, I'm sure, from different outlets, and Paul and I are going to do one here in the next couple of days for The Athletic, um, you know, a lot of it feels pretty settled. There are probably about a dozen guys that are pretty locked up, you know, barring injury. There are probably another six or seven or so that are not quite locked up, but close to barring injury. Um, and, and that leaves you with maybe three spots if it's a 23-man roster, maybe six spots if it ends up being 26-man roster, which I think we both expect it to be in the end for Qatar. Still TBD, yeah. though, on FIFA's front. Um, but yeah, and Roldan's been a part of every camp in qualifying or was a part of every camp in qualifying, but he didn't play like at all. Um, he's been one of the best players so far in MLS this season in CCL when you account that for him. Uh, I, I don't know if he really fits what Burhalter wants, but we want to go through this roster, not so much highlight the, the locks and the sure things that you already know about, but give a few picks each on guys that are more on the fringe and, maybe deserve more time or deserve a chance. Maybe like Christian Roldan, but we won't mention him since we just talked about him. So Paul, let's start with you, buddy. You get first pick. Who's your number one? Yeah, guy I think on the this fringe is, who needs this a is chance. Probably, this is probably both of our number ones on our list of fringe guys who, who is going to probably get a look in June, and that's Georgie Mihailovic. Um, Chicago Fire homegrown, who moved to Montreal, and has lived up to the trade million dollar trade new contract. And he's been productive since he moved to Canada. 
And he continues and to be, yeah, he's continued to be a very dangerous player in the final third, scoring goals, assisting on goals, and creating opportunities for his team. And, you know, this is a guy who's been involved in the national team. He was in Greg Berhalter's first January camp in 2019. He was in January camp this past year and was in consideration for a roster spot. Um, and I think he'll get a look because it's a position, the number eight, where I think there are some depth battles happening. You look at Gianluca Busio, Christian Roldan, you know, guys who are right there on the bubble. And I think Georgi Mihailovic is going to get a chance to show that he should be at least considered for a spot on the plane to Qatar. I think he definitely should be. He adds a little something different, right? And we'll talk about this more later in the show, but you know, one of the things that's been missing, in my opinion, from the U.S. midfield, they're, they're so good in transition, and Musa and McKenney are so disruptive with their defensive work and, and their ability to win duels and kind of set a physical tone in there. But those guys don't have a great final ball a lot of the time. I think Musa has it in his bag, but he's been inconsistent with it. McKenney, his strength is not the ball at his feet in his distribution. Like, it's just not. That's okay. Um Mihalovic is is good in that area, and he has been good since he moved to Montreal. You know, he had a ton of assists last year. He's off to another good start again this season. You know, Paul, I remember, I think we broke the news of this trade when it happened uh, a year and a half ago or whenever it did. And I think we were both like, man, Chicago got a haul. Like, we were like, this is a good deal for the fire. And and I actually stand by that, despite what he's gone on to do, because I don't think, I think he needed the change of scenery. He definitely needed the change. It was the right trade. Sometimes a trade happens that's the right trade, even if a player does well at the next stop that sometimes going to that next stop is what brought the best out of that player. Yeah. And I remember him being super excited to go play with Thierry Henry and obviously that didn't end up happening. Um, but you know, he got a new contract. He's more than lived up to it and he's, he's kind of looked at it. Okay. I'm not at home anymore. I'm outside of my comfort zone and I'm going to buckle down and really, really, really be a pro. And that's what he's done. And he's capitalized and credit to him. man. Um, and I think he's absolutely a guy that deserves a look um, maybe in these June Nations League matches or friendlies. Uh, will he get it? I think so, as long as he continues playing the way he has been. Um, because I think he's a guy that, that can add a little bit of a different element and maybe help set up the attack a little bit better than what we've seen from possession um, over the course of qualifying for the national team. So yeah, I think that's the obvious one. I'm going to go with another one that is, I don't know, obvious, maybe is a little bit strong, but... Uh, certainly picking up a lot of steam. Uh, and that's Brandon Vasquez. FC Cincinnati striker, Brandon Vasquez. Uh, leading the MLS Golden Boot standings right now. He's got nine goals and two assists, dating back to last year over his last 11 matches. Um, you know, big. He moves pretty well. Um, he can combine decently well. He's finishing at a good clip, obviously. Uh, and considering kind of the state of the overall number nine situation with the USMNT, which anyone listening to the show is more than well aware of. We don't need to belabor that point too much. Everything is an option. And so if he can continue playing well over the next couple of months before that next window in June, why not give him a look, right? Like, yeah. go ahead, I bring mean, him any, in. Any American passport holding number nine who is putting the ball in the back of the net is going to get a look. They have to. There is no one that's grabbed that job and and Berhalter, Greg Berhalter has tried a lot of different people in that role, going back to the summer. Daryl DK, Jordan Pifak, Ricardo Pepe, Josh Sargent, Jossi Zardes, Jesus Ferreira. They've all played there. 
And some have done better than others. Some have done better than others. I think Ricardo Pepe is probably the guy that you're looking at as you're starting number nine at the World Cup, and you hope that he comes on at some point and, and starts to score goals again. And, and has looked but, better, by the way, to be fair. Sure, to he's still a good soccer player. He still yeah. has all the, the same potential that caused that, that had Osberg spend that much money on him to bring him to the Bundesliga. But I think, yeah, yeah, of course, I think you look at Brandon Vasquez if he keeps scoring goals. So it's an easy one for me as long as his form continues as it is right now. Which another, big if, but we'll see. Yeah. Another name that I, I thought, you know, has certainly been, you know, discussed on USMNT Twitter and elsewhere um, that I think is an easy one to bring in for June to get another look at is Joe Scally. Um, now, Joe I think it's Scally. A, Was I, he I a talking point during the last window? Can you refresh my memory? Yeah. I got COVID as soon as we got back home. And yeah, Joe Scally. has been a blade of a blur. <laughs> Joe Scally was was Donde esta el considered. Scali? <laughs> he was considered as a as a right back replacement. Um, instead, Shaq Moore came in, played really really well in Orlando. By the way, in the the game that essentially clinched the World Cup berth, um, and and I think it's justified. Joe Scally's young. He's been inconsistent this year in the Bundesliga. He started really well with Gladbach. He dropped off right around the same time he got his first call up in November. That's to be expected from a young player. He plays wing back in Gladbach system. Um, and he's been very, very inconsistent in the month since. And that's okay. He's a young player. Like you, you have to build in room for those inconsistencies, but I don't blame Greg Berhalter for not immediately summoning him. And that being said, when you're picking a World Cup roster, there's a lot of things that have to be considered that are different than a qualifying roster or a summer tournament roster. Among those is versatility. Among those is building experience into your team for the next cycle. Not that the U.S. needs to do that too much, considering it's the youngest team in the World Cup. But I think you, I think you bring Joe Scally in and you see, you know, if he has a little bit of an extended two-week window in June, does he does he show you something different? Um, I think you bring him in September and, and give him a chance to, to win a job or at least fight for a job and build those experiences into his resume and, and, and help him kind of grow and learn and, and, and fight for, for a spot. So he's, he's, he was number two on my list. I feel like he's, he can help at the left back spot. That's already thin and, and at right back, you know, probably the deepest position on the roster, in my opinion, you know, he provides another, another body. Maybe we're. I would argue is a bit deeper. Yeah, but if you back. if you but yeah, winger overall, yes. Right like if a specific side of the field I fair think right enough. right fair right enough. back. Um I would still argue either winger spot. <laughs> okay. Um I'm glad you mentioned outside backs though, because that's where I'm going next. I'm flipping to left back from from that previous comment that we just had. Uh where Anthony Robinson has locked it down. He was fantastic. I thought probably the third best player for the U.S. over the course of qualifying behind Adams and Zimmerman, I would argue. Um, but behind him, it's pretty thin. Now, he's been Mr. Reliable back there. A lot of three-game weeks, he's looked fit. He hasn't looked fatigued. But in the event that he does go down with an injury, either before or during the World Cup, you want some cover. Serginio Dest can be that player. Joe Scally could be that player. But neither of them are pure left-backs right? Or natural left backs. George Bello is a natural left back. He's gotten looks in the spot or got looks in the spot in qualifying. To me, not super impressive. 
Um, I would want to kick the tires on some other options there. Uh, not writing him off or anything like that, but I think it's worth considering some other guys. Uh, the guy that I would consider in the here and now, if we were doing this for tomorrow, would probably be Dewan Jones of the New England Revolution. Um, very athletic player. He's done really well for the Revs over the last couple of years. Uh, decent going forward, good defender in space, um, offers a lot of the things that Greg Berhalter, I think, wants from that position. And then the other candidate that would be Kevin Paredes, who I think if we were having this discussion four months ago, would probably be the number one in in terms of this discussion, this conversation. Um, but he has not played in a, a second in the Bundesliga since he moved to Wolfsburg in January. Obviously a very young guy and you know a guy who conceivably with a full preseason under his belt in the summer, um, maybe some moves at the club potentially, who knows, could start next year, um, get some playing time, and, and maybe work his way onto the squad. Uh, obviously a big talent, but young and developing still all the same. So, But those are two guys that I'm interested in as potential cover at left back because that whole situation just kind of makes me a little a little nervous. Ideally, you don't have to break glass in case of emergency there, and, and Robinson can just play and, and you can ride that out, but you might have to break glass in case of emergency. And if you do, I would prefer to have somebody that actually is like a real left back on the team. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think Pare- I have Paredes on my list. He, you know, this is a guy with very little experience in MLS. You know, to me, his transfer, seven and a half million dollars to Wolfsburg stood yeah. out because he was so inexperienced and so much potential. I really like him as a player. I know he's very well regarded, was was well regarded in D.C., is well regarded within the U.S. soccer program. Um, and I didn't really expect him to get off to a running start in Germany. I hoped he would, but he I, I thought there might be a little bit of a learning curve. And I do agree with you, Sam. I think every World Cup cycle, there's somebody who comes on in the last couple months who wasn't in the picture at all and kind of surprises you. And I think Paredes could be that guy. He could, you know, benefit from the preseason, start the Bundesliga year well, and, and he's the guy. Um, you know, it's like if Brandon Vasquez were scoring these goals in September and October versus yeah. now. Doing a Hurt Gomez or Edson Buttle circa exactly. 2010. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I have Paredes on my list as well. Another guy I have on my list, no surprise, another name that's been mentioned a lot is John Brooks. I think John Brooks will be there in June. Whoa, hold on. I'm just peeling back the curtain. Paul, this guy was on my list in the in the first edition of the show. Well, you're just you stealing, stole, you're you stole stealing my, my guy. I had Paredes on my list and you stole him. Yeah, so okay. I'm stealing back. That's, uh, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it's fair. <laughs> Don't point that out. Uh, you don't get to call me out. I only get to call you out. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to step in with John Brooks here. Um, again, you know, you look at what Greg Berhalter's comments were. He he took, I think, four or five questions about John Brooks not being in camp for the, the final qualifiers when the roster was announced. And he said, listen, there are some things that John Brooks needs to do better in our model to be a starter. I thought that was an important word, a revealing word that he said starter, not on the roster. And I think that's because that's who John Brooks needs to be in this team. If he's going to be on the squad, he's got to be a starter. And he's not, he's a Champions League center back, has been a Champions League center back, has been a World Cup center back, and he's probably not coming in to be the fourth guy. And Greg Berhalter said at the time, you know, some of the things that we want to work on him with are not things that we'll have the luxury to do in this window in two days before our first game at the Azteca. And, you know, it's something we can do in June, something we can do in September. So I do think we'll see him. And 
you know, I I don't know whether he'll win the starting job or not. I think Walker Zimmerman has been fantastic since grabbing a hold of that number one job. But, you know, maybe he beats out Miles Robinson. Maybe he beats out Chris Richards for that left-footed center back job. I wouldn't I wouldn't count him out completely. But I would also note the, la- the last time we saw him play for the U.S. In, in September, he wasn't very good and that he's had a very up and down, more down than up Bundesliga season. That's, you know, yeah. this is a guy who was talking about a major contract extension a year ago and is going to be going to leave for free this summer i think that's indicative of kind of where things have gone for him so you know tbd but i I do think we'll see john brooks in camp in june i mean i think he's certainly got the talent and the ability to to be one of the best u.s center backs i don't think there's any questioning that we've seen it over a number of years now right my question is is the bridge still existent with berhalter there's been drama there whether perceived or real right? There is some drama. It appears. I, I shouldn't even say that. There is there is the appearance of drama. Whether or not that's real or not, who knows, right? But it's been an interesting situation, to say the least. The whole starter thing, is he willing to come into camp if he's not guaranteed a starting spot? I don't know. Maybe not, right? We don't really have clarity on that situation. Uh, he says he wants to be back in the team, right? Um, June would be a good time to test that out, but I, I'm I'm not expecting anything basically you know one way or another if he's called if he's not i'm not going to be surprised um and i think the u.s is in an okay center back spot even if he doesn't end up making that team in Qatar. uh that being said i think he probably makes this group better <laughs> if he's one of those four or five or however many center backs end up going to the world cup in the fall so we'll see i think there's some real moving parts at play there though um now i have to dig a little deeper paul because you made me make a switch, which was prompted by me making a switch. Anytime I can make you dig a little deeper, it's I'm doing my job. You so know? there are a few names that people are tossing about. You know, Eric Williamson, Paxton Pomacall, Daryl DK would fit into that number nine discussion for sure. And, and those are worthy. But I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you. And maybe it's not that interesting. Um, because in the world of debating the 27th or 26th man on the, on the USMNT World Cup roster... There is no more important debate than who is going to be the third goalkeeper. But <laughs> we're here. We live in the weeds. Um, Gaga Slonina. He's been a part of some camps. He's off to a good start again with the Chicago Fire. Four shutouts. Fire defending well. He hasn't had to do a ton in all of those games. Um, obviously, he's been in, in youth national team camps many times. Uh could this be a situation where if you're feeling comfortable with Stefan and Turner, and we'll talk more about them in a bit, you bring the youngster with an eye on just giving him a taste for what it might be like come 2026 when maybe he's playing in the Champions League and maybe the starter and all of that stuff? Could could you see that happening? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting decision that Burhalter has to make with the number three job. You have an incredibly young team, the youngest team that's going to be at the World Cup by a significant margin. By nearly yeah. two years of the teams that qualified for the World it's Cup, it's crazy. It's crazy like legitimately number. crazy. Yeah. Yes. What What is and the gap? It's like the same. It's like the same gap between the U.S. and the next youngest team, and then that that team and like the 18th youngest team or something yes. like that. Yeah. Exactly right. And 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 so when I think, and I've said this before, I think you look for spots on the roster where you can bring and insert experience into the dressing room, into the locker room, and the U.S. has done that with that third goalkeeper spot with Sean Johnson, who is very well liked in the group who understands the role as the third center back who Go, goalkeeper yeah and he not sorry, center back. 
Yeah. I'm still on second time through second time through. But I, and so do you go with that? Do you bring a veteran guy or do you say, we're going to continue to build this group for the future. We're going to continue to build this group towards 2026 and we're going to bring in Gagos Lonina and expect him to, and, and allow him to experience a World Cup and allow him the experience of being around this group of guys in anticipation of what his role could be for this team in 2026, in 2030, at the Olympics, if they if they qualify out of the U20 CONCACAF qualifying. <laughs> Which we should not assume. <laughs> Which we shouldn't assume, but under this new qualification format well, is more likely than it we've was before. S- we've said this before. <laughs> well. And so I think it's a tough, I think it's an actually, an actually very, very difficult decision for Burhalter in kind of how much do you lose by taking out Sean Johnson within the locker room? We don't really, we can't know that. It's, or it's hard not in for the locker you and room? I. It's hard for you and I to really know that. But that's kind of, I think that's what the consideration is. I think, I, think, I think ultimately it won't be that hard of a choice. And I don't think that Slonina will go. I think it will be Johnson or some other veteran. Um, for the veteran reasons that you just mentioned, and for the reason that we could very well be heading into a World Cup where the number one and number two, whether that's Stefan and Turner or reverse the order, neither of them might, that both of them could be backups at their clubs heading. Are likely to be backups. Exactly. So in a situation like that, I think you want the experience. If it was more settled, if those guys are starting for Manchester City and Arsenal, right, and they're both playing out of their minds and everything's good to go, then sure, bring the young kid along. That's cool. But I think you want kind of the mature season hand. Um, and I think that's Sean Johnson. So I don't think it'll be too too hard of a decision at the end of it. But an interesting conversation to have all the same. Any other names out there, Paul, that we didn't mention that you just want to shout out real quick before we move yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, the one name again at the midfield, I think Eric Williamson is a name to keep an eye on uh, mm-hmm. as a potential guy who could get called in for to compete at the number eight spot. But Talking about veterans and where you can fit veterans in and a number nine job where no one's really grabbed hold of it. Josie Altador. It's not <laughs> it's not been a good start for him in New England. Not it hasn't in the been sense terrible. Of, not not yeah. in the sense of like he's been bad, but in sense of winning a job with the national team. But if if they sell Buxa in the summer and Josie starts to play and get a run of games at the number nine and he's yeah. scoring and goals. Carlos Heel and Gustavo Bo are yeah. them. And yeah. he puts 10 goals in net in September and October and is going into the playoffs scoring goals. I think you bring Josie Altador to Qatar. I do. Yeah. I think. I mean, he, there's he, so much that could happen in regards to the rest of the number nines too, but he would have a great case. That's for sure. It's hard to look away from the potential of Josie Altador of what we know he can be, what he has been, and what the current situation is. Yeah. He's got to show it again, though, because it's been a long time since he's been those good things at this point. A lot of injuries in Toronto. Obviously, it did not end well for him up there. Um, but a new lease on life, potentially, in New England. I certainly wouldn't rule him out. That's for damn sure. He looks engaged mentally. He looks pretty fit. Um, and if he can get it going, and if I think the key is if they sell Buxa. Because if they don't, I don't think he's going to get the playing time requisite yeah. to, to get into the form that he'll need to. But I'm um, guessing that that's what they sold him on when they signed him. Well, yeah, that or the one and a half million dollars a year that they guaranteed him for three years straight. For sure. But I think part of that part of that sales pitch of your Bruce Arena is, listen, our plan is to sell Buxa. Yeah. And well, I want a veteran who can get us at bare minimum, who can keep us going for the back half of the season because we yeah, have aspirations yeah, yeah. to win trophies. But if they don't get the valuation or the offer that they want, they're not going to sell them. And I'm sure Bruce was straight about that too, right? There's yeah, always a chance. Sure. So they turned down, I think, 
I mean, I reported the damn number. I can't even remember it. I think it was just short of 8 million in, in January. So, you know, and Buxa this year is probably he's not playing quite as well as he was last year, just like the rest of the refs. So will they get that in the summer? Who knows? Well, Sam, um, as you said, this, these are very important debates. These are the, the debates well, that will make the difference between winning the World joke. Cup and not winning the World Cup. We joke, but Josie Altidore and Brandon Vasquez could be the difference. And uh, maybe that hits a little close to home. But for anyone invested, truly, truly invested in changing the way that American soccer is perceived around the country, around the world, excuse me, and the country for that matter. Um, it might yeah. come down to Brandon it Vasquez's It might come down to FC Cincinnati's own, man. Who knows? That's a real thought for you to stew on in the break. Stay with us. We'll be back with some questions, some reflections, and some observations from the Ocho. Stay with us. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. Allocation disorder, Sam Stasekel, Paul Tenorio, one of us recovering from COVID, another one of us recovering from his brief stint as a firefighter in Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah, that that will just that with not the context of our first recorded episode, people are going to wonder what that's about. I was at I was in Costa Rica for a couple of days after the game to see my family. They threw a big party for me in Curitabat, which is a part of San Jose where my uncle lives at the the community center there. They rented it out, and about ten minutes into the party, some people from the town started to pop their head in, and they were like, "Oh, there's a fire outside." I'm like, oh, okay. We're like thinking like, oh, maybe like a little little fire. We come out and the factory that is like a half a block away from this community center is engulfed in flames, like the entire factory. Dang. It is a massive, massive, massive fire. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden you start to see volunteer firefighters pulling up in like their, you know, Toyota 4Runners and stuff and like park in the grass next to the community center and jump out and like put on their fire gear right there. And I started to think like, oh, this is not going to be good. Like this is the type of fire that you're talking like 10, 12 trucks in New York City arriving to, you know, and they Yikes. they ended up having like one, maybe two. And the the closest fire hydrant was like three or four blocks, I guess. I mean, it, you know, there weren't blocks. It was two if you count like what that street actually looked like. But it was a, a good distance from where the fire was. And so they parked the truck down by that hydrant and then they connected the hose, but they needed help getting the hoses to the factory and laid out along the streets. And so, and so Paul put on his fireman's hat. Yeah. So my cousin and I were among uh, the many people, men and women, who ran and grabbed a fire hose and, and ran, sprinted it to the, the factory that was on fire. I waited a few days before I told my wife that. <laughs> She wasn't, she wasn't happy <laughs> with me. She wasn't very happy with me. 
listen, you got to do what you got to do. Help she out saw the can, pictures. Man. She saw the pictures of that fire. She understood that there was definitely a high probability of explosion. And yet I ran toward it. But I ended up okay. And sadly, I mean, I left two days later. The fire was still going on. Um, they had they had managed to keep it away from the homes. And my family helped to evacuate all these dogs from an animal hospital that was like three doors down. Whoa. Um, and uh, they couldn't and get the, the Paw Patrol out there. The dogs all ended up okay. And, Where were the uh, dogs at? They're supposed to put that fire out, according yeah. to the cartoons my nephew watches. So technically, I am a Costa Rican firefighter. And with that in mind... A man of I, many talents. I have, <laughs> I, I think, a higher level of expertise of how Greg Berhalter should put out some of the fires in this roster. Wow, How's that? what a segue. How's that? Uh, I mean, I... I mean, honestly, it's so good that I'm just blown away. I don't even know what to say right now. So why don't you just keep going? All right, well, why don't Lead we talk about in. one of those fires? Sam, we saw this team through every qualifying game. We saw we that they struggled, especially when they were playing against CONCACAF teams that were sitting in a low block. They have they not did, yet yes. figured out how to break down a team that is sitting really, really deep and defending and saying, beat us with the ball. Yeah. And... Common problem we don't know for, for sure. many teams around the yeah, world. By we the don't way. know Manchester for sure. City had had issues against Atletico Madrid the other day. Well, that was a, that was a special performance. Um, we don't know if Iran will play that way. We don't even know the third opponent in the group yet: Scotland, mm. Wales, Ukraine. All of them will probably approach a game with the U.S. Di- differently. But you know, if they do match up against an Iranian team that wants to defend a little bit more, if they do match up against Scotland or Wales who, you know, more than likely are going to be more of a transition oriented team than a possession oriented team who want the ball. What's the solution? How does the U S men's national team find its mojo attacking mojo against a team like that at the world cup? Well, I don't know that there is a solution without a change of personnel. And I don't know that there is a change of personnel without a fundamental shift in the system. We've seen the U.S. set up throughout qualifying and for a number of years now, really, uh, as this transition pressing team, right? And the keys to that are the three midfielders and what they're able to do in terms of winning duels and covering ground and all of those things. And Tyler Adams, the number six, and Eunice Musa and Weston McKenney, the starting number eights, they're all excellent in those areas. Supremely athletic, you know, intense, um, cover a ton of ground and win those duels in the midfield. And all of that's really important. All of them look to get vertical quickly. Uh, McKenney and Musa are, are really good at carrying the ball forward on the dribble. Um, and McKenney is really good at finishing things off in the box. Musa has a little bit more of the passing range as well. Sometimes a little bit inconsistent as would belie a, a player of his age. Um, what they're not so good at is the final ball for the most part. Right, Musa has it, I think, in his bag. But again, the inconsistency there. It's not really McKenney's game. And Paul, you're muted. You're talking, but you're muted. I was saying the combination play and in, in and around the box in tight spaces, especially, I don't think either of their yeah. strengths. And, and we've seen that. And that's no slight on those guys as players. It's just kind of who they are, right? And in some ways, I think it's hurt the U.S., particularly against those opponents that are sitting deep and compact and organized. It's tough. It's difficult to break those things, those teams down, even when you have Kevin De Bruyne pulling the strings, right? As we saw the other day in UEFA Champions League. Um, and when you don't, it becomes even more difficult. And I think that has knock-on effects as well. We've talked about it on the show. We've written about it. Christian Pulisic, 
wasn't super impactful in qualifying for the most part. When he was at his most impactful, he was getting the ball in space facing goal, right? And because of how he was marked, because of the spaces that he was popping up in, um, because of various different factors, he wasn't getting the ball in those spaces very, very often. And when he is open in those spaces, you got to find him. And the U.S. couldn't really do it that well. When they did it best, I don't know, probably the game against Panama at home. Who was playing in that match? Luca De La Torre. He's a little bit better at delivering those balls than Weston McKenney or Yunus Musa, right? And so, I don't know. If you're going to break a team down, I think you need more ball players in the midfield. And maybe that's Luca De La Torre, but I think the real question is what you do with Gio Reyna. And yeah, I does think he it, continue I, to play on the wing or do you move him inside? Do you play him as a false nine? I, I think that's exactly what it comes down to is that one player, Gio Reyna. And I think there is another element in that game against Panama that mattered and in and, and that Gio, Gio came on the field late and, and that helped certainly, I think, open things up because he's a player who can beat you off the dribble. He's a player who is looking for those combinations in and around the box. He's a player who draws defensive attention. And... That's going to matter for Christian Pulisic as well, to, to take some of that pressure away from him where we saw a lot of CONCACAF teams, two and three players uh, around Christian at all times, especially when the ball moved to that side of the field. And it became very difficult for him to get into those open spaces, like you said. So to me, Gio Reyna is the key. And then to your point, it, it matters where you play him. Do you play him as a false nine? Do you play him as a number eight centrally? Do you play him as a winger? Do you switch the formation around a little bit, change and ask Wes and McKinney to stay a little deeper or Eunice Musa, and you start Gio Reyna a little higher in a more traditional number 10 role in a 4-2-3-1 type of setup um, or one that kind of at least plays him a little bit higher and a little bit more central. These are these are difficult decisions, and I think the the question of where to play Gio Reyna becomes a central part of the June window. And I think you have to try out a few different things. I think you have to try Gio Reyna as a false nine if you don't you don't think that you have a nine emerging. So maybe that comes about in September. And I think you have to try him centrally as a number eight, just to see how the dynamic changes. Which would you prioritize between those? I think I would start by playing him as an, as an eight, because it, it, it doesn't disrupt the overall system as much. It puts a good player on the bench. And, And the way Matt Doyle phrased this, I saw on Twitter a while back was you're trading off, putting Musa on the bench in order to put Tim Weah on the field by bringing Gio Reyna inside. And that that's, that's a trade he's not willing to make. But I, I think it's a trade I would be willing to make for the right matchup. And and I think that we will be talking matchups a lot more in tournament play than we do over the, a round of qualification. I, I think you can look at a game like the England game and say, what do we need more? You know, maybe Musa's a better fit for that England game. But when you play Iran, maybe Gio Reyna's a better fit as an eight. But you need to explore what it looks like. And so for me, one of the, the number one things I hope to see in June is Gio Reyna in a central role. I think it's very important to, to observe, to get data on how that impacts this team. I would agree with that. Um, and it would shift things. And there's a trade-off there, right? If you move him inside and let's say you start Adams and McKenney behind him, right? Well, you're probably telling McKenney, okay, play a little bit deeper than you would before right? Um, you're probably saying to him, don't be quite, maybe don't be quite as aggressive with the spaces you're taking up offensively and defensively. Be a little bit more disciplined with your positioning. We've seen him struggle with that in the past, right? And when you're putting a little bit more of a leash on him, are you taking away some of the impact he can make? 
potentially, right? I think you're losing a little bit of that defensive pressure that you get with that three-man midfield of, of McKenney, Musa, and Adams, right? A little bit of that bite, and that's going to shift a lot, right? And maybe that makes you a little bit defensively weaker. So there are trade-offs involved in this, and I think it's important to remember that. It's not just moving Reyna inside and, and you're better in the attack and you don't lose anything. No, you would probably lose things. So that's that's part of this entire discussion. I do think it will be very matchup dependent. And I think you probably can create some solutions, even if you leave Gio Reyna on the wing. He can still come inside if he's playing on the wing, right? And, and Musa can pop out or Dest when he's healthy, who, who yeah. you know, didn't get to play on the same side as Gio Reyna in qualifying. Um you know, there's, yeah, there's possibilities there. It changes the dynamics of the right side a lot. If you have Serginio yeah. Dest overlapping Gio Reyna, who comes, who likes to come inside central. And of course, Dest isn't the natural overlapping kind of fullback. He likes to come inside too, right? So like there, there are elements of that as well. So it's, I wish they had more time to fine tune this thing, but they don't. And, and that's the difficulty of not just having a young group, but this compressed timeline and, and all of it. And and there isn't a, there isn't a lot of opportunity to kind of tinker. So they that just makes these June games and these September matches against whoever they end up being against. It looks like Uruguay for at least one of the friendlies in June. Obviously, Grenada and El Salvador in Nations League, which, I mean, it hurts me to say that, honestly. No, no offense to those countries, but ideally you'd be playing stronger teams at this time. Um but you really have to take those seriously and try and take advantage of them as best you can. Because to me, that Reina situation, it's huge. Not only does it affect like what the U.S. can do in terms of their own ceiling, but it really affects, in my opinion, what Pulisic can do. And all of those things go together. So we'll see. I, I do want to point out, Sam, that we're talking about these combinations and these dilemmas that are real. For And you hope, if you're Greg Berhalter, that you have these problems. Because through qualifying, he hasn't. Giorena missed all, mm-hmm. every window between September and March. Serginio Dest wasn't there in March. Tim Weah missed time. Christian Pulisic missed Mc- time. McKinney Weston McKinney wasn't, wasn't there, there in March. So, he wasn't there for quite a bit of games, in fact. Yeah, so you, yeah. You, you rarely have everyone at your disposal. But if they do, these are the questions that will pop up. And I think regardless, you want to see what it looks like with Gio in a more central role, just to have an idea of what it gives you and what you lose to your point, Sam. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that Uruguay game will be a good test, right? That's a team that really defends committedly. Committedly. Is that a word with a lot of commitment? There we go. Speaking good today. Um, (laughs) And, and you know, they look to get forward quickly and in transition. Sometimes they can obviously play with the best of them with some of the players they have on that team but they're hard, they're physical. So I, I think that game will be an excellent test for this U.S. team, assuming it does indeed become official. But I wouldn't mind a subtle shift, man. I wouldn't mind a shift towards a little bit more ball playing. And I think if Greg Berhalter had his way, as we saw over the first, what, year or so of his tenure, he would like to play that way. It's just, does he have enough time to really implement it? And does it make sense for this squad? We'll see. Um, moving along, we touched on this a little bit in the previous segment. Who's going to be the starting goalkeeper at the World Cup, man? This is a debate I think none of us really anticipated having at this point in time, but it's also a debate that um, looks like it's going to continue up to and through Qatar. Yeah, I think it I think it it kind of boils down to one idea in my mind, which is kind of what is more important? Elite shot stopping or 
a more well-rounded goalkeeper, a goalkeeper who can play with his feet as well as be a good shot stopper. And so the question that Greg Berhalter has to answer is, is the difference in shot stopping between Matt Turner and Zach Steffen so great of a gap that he cannot, he, he, he's willing to lose what Zach Steffen provides with his distribution, with his ability to be a release valve when, when facing pressure. And I think there is a bit of a, I don't want to say a blind spot, but I think there is a bit of trust that, that exists between Burhalter and Steffen. Steffen helped develop, Burhalter helped develop Steffen in Columbus. He sold him to Manchester City. And we saw when Steffen's at his best against Mexico, and against Costa Rica, that he can that he can add something to this U.S. team when they're on the ball. But we've also seen Stefan make some some big mistakes and let in some goals that you you question whether Matt Turner would have saved. I, I think the big question, Sam, is will Matt Turner's shot stopping remain the same when he is not playing consistently at Arsenal? And and that's Presumably, the X factor yeah. here. Presumably, yeah. Um, and there is no way to answer that question, of course. Right. And who knows? Maybe he does. Maybe Aaron Ramsdale gets hurt or maybe he dips in form and Matt Turner becomes a starter and never lets go. Right. And this isn't really even a debate come November. I think it's unlikely that those events come to pass. Um, But I think you're right in terms of the way you're framing the debate. Right. Matt Turner, I think it's fair to say, is a better shot stopper than Zach Steffen. The numbers have borne that out when the two were in MLS and the numbers bore that out over qualifying as well. You know, Paul Carr tweeted this out. Um, and those of you that don't follow Paul, he's, he does great work with, with true media. He does a lot of stats. Uh, he used to be with ESPN. Some of you probably remember him from, uh, the men in blazers, like panic room segments that they did back in Brazil in 2014 at the world cup, which by the way, total aside remains some of my favorite segments of soccer TV ever. Maybe. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about, Paul, but I loved those world cup recap shows every night. Um, yes. Anyway. He, uh, he tweeted something out after the end of the octagonal. X expected goals against and how many goals were conceded by each goalkeeper that played in qualifying in CONCACAF. Uh, Zach Steffen finished 12th out of 13 with a negative 1.46 difference. Um, he had 3.54. The U.S. conceded 3.54 expected goals when he was in net and he gave up five. Uh, Matt Turner was sixth in this category. He uh, he had a positive impact, 0.81, if you want to call it that. U.S. conceded 5.81 expected goals. When he was in net, he allowed five. He made some big saves. Um, Stefan, did, Stefan had some big touches. In Mexico, he had a big touch. I, I think it was on Lozano. Whistled one over the bar, and Stefan got a fingertip to it. So I'm not saying he didn't make good stops. Um, I also think it's fair to say that Stefan is better with his feet. Right. And we saw that over the course of qualifying as well. Um, I think there were moments where they played to Stefan and he got them out of jams where they would never even play it back to Turner. Right. And it's hard to kind of measure the impact of that. But our buddy, John Mueller, who writes for The Athletic, does a lot of great data journalism. Um, he wrote an article last summer for 538 before he joined The Athletic full time talking about Turner and Stefan and this whole debate that we're having. And basically, you know, he was pulling on stats, goals added from American soccer analysis, which he helped develop. And basically what he said is goals added based on everything a goalkeeper does that isn't saving shots. The impact is pretty minuscule, right? It's like 
0.03 was the highest goals added above average for any goalkeeper if you take away the saves. But if you include the saves, like Matt Turner, for instance, it's like 25 goals added over the course of whatever time frame it was. And that was the best in the league for any player. Better than Pozuelo, better than Vela, better than Carles Hill. Turner had the best goals added in MLS over that time frame. Um, I mean, again, it's sort of matchup dependent, but I think you can anticipate that you're going to be under it a little get, a bit against England, right? And the, the remaining group games are going to be difficult, no matter who they're against. And so I don't know. It's what you prioritize. I think we know what Burhalter's prioritized. But maybe that game in Costa Rica and Stefan's performance, which was not very good, maybe that changes the calculus a little bit. Yeah, and again, we'll also have a bit more of an equalizer in that Turner, who has been playing consistently and playing well for New England, won't be doing that anymore. And I think that is a factor that, like you said, we can't really, we don't really know how that's going to impact his game, but goalkeeping is a game of rhythm and it's it's been a big knock on Stefan that throughout this process and I think it'll be interesting to see how it impacts a goalkeeper like Turner who is so much more about his shot stopping and his reactions and and things like that but I I do think it's an area that's worth keeping an eye on because I do think it's the one area like I think Greg Berhalter's done a good job of benching players when they deserve to be benched and making changes when they need to be made and sometimes he got it wrong you know, sometimes he made changes for the sake of rotation, and we saw those rotations go poorly in Honduras and in Panama. They rebounded yeah. from one; they didn't from the other. That he didn't rotate in the last window, and yeah, that he, he out didn't really nicely. rotate. Yeah. And and you know, he he moved on from Brooks when he wasn't playing well, and Walker Zimmerman became the number one center back in the pool. But this is an area that I think has been an area where he's been less willing to make a change based on anything else when the two are both available yeah when they've both been available it's been stefan and so i wonder if that changes or not and i wonder why that is and and you know to your point as somebody who is a data-driven coach berhalter is a data-driven coach that idea of of goals added i think is a significant data point and i and john tweeted retweeted paul Carr's stat and he was like an imperfect stat but one that gives Turner over Stefan. So I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's team Turner for sure. Which I thought was, which yeah. I thought was pretty funny. Um, but that goals added article, it's five thirty eight. It's from last summer, right around gold cup. I think it was in July. It's worth reading. Um, you know, I would encourage you guys to go check it out. It, it adds a different layer and it's not a perfect stat either. There's goalkeeping right. stats in particular are difficult. Yeah. So. And I mean, I, again, I, I, I think there are times when Stefan can be a really good shot stopper. I mean, France mm-hmm. in 2018, when he played France before the world cup, He's he was fantastic. Man. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting debate for sure. I think, I think you have two pretty good options at the end of the day. Um, and we'll see how it shakes out. A lot's going to change in that regard. And with regards to the rest of this roster as well between now and November 21st when they kick things off. So, you know, it ain't over. That's for damn sure. Um, Paul, I think, you know, let's spend a, a minute or two here giving some shout outs. And and on the first edition of this attempted episode, <laughs> I, I just named everyone and I didn't leave you with any room. So I will let you go first this time. And I would say just leave a couple of names for me too. Unlike, unlike what I did last time around, all right? Sure. I think the three guys that stood out to me in this window is like the, or I'll, I'll do four. How about that? 
One name that's like a big name that we knew going in, but I think lived up to his name is Tyler Adams. So I'll start there. Yeah, he was tremendous. They leaned on best him Best player heavily. for me, I think, in qualifying. Yeah, I, I thought the best player over qualifying throughout the whole thing, lived up to everything you'd expect of him, and was available, which was different than Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney and all the other big, Gio Reyna, the other stars, Serginio Dest. The other three guys, I'll say, are guys who emerged in this qualifying cycle as important pieces. And those for me were Walker Zimmerman, Anthony Robinson, and Brendan Aronson. And I'm going to give special bit of love to Anthony Robinson because I was a hater. I, I I didn't see him. I as, was too. We both. Yeah, were. I didn't see him as a as a, a contributor for this U.S. team. I thought he had been very poor in his opportunities with the U.S. But he grabbed a hold of that job after not starting the first game for the U.S. And he became one of the more consistent performers throughout qualifying. And and mm-hmm. credit to him for doing that. He is now for sure the starter at left back. Um, Walker Zimmerman is a really special story. I think he's been underrated throughout his whole career, traded twice in major league soccer. That's now so unbelievable, man. The, the two time MLS defender of the year. And Raining. like I said, you know, yeah. one of like the first names written on the team sheet for the U S right now. Captain the last game in yeah. Costa Rica. And, yeah. and, and I just think that's a special story. And then Brendan Aronson is super cool, man. He's a guy who had a very quick ascension from, you know, a homegrown player who Jim Curtin talked about. He just wasn't there attacking-wise. Broke out at MLS's back. Sam, you chronicled this story very well in a story for The Athletic. Went to Salzburg, has done incredibly well there, and now it looks like he's lined up for a major move to the Premier League in the summer. So those are the guys. And, and he was great for the U.S. when they needed him, especially early mm-hmm. in qualifying when guys were missing. He was he was stepping up and scoring goals and assisting on goals and adding a lot to the, to the team. So for me, those are the four guys that kind of top my list. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I would say Aronson faded after the first couple of windows. Sure. Um, obviously, he was injured for the last one, but certainly a guy that I would fully expect to be a lock for Qatar, barring any injury or anything like that. Um, I would include Tim Weah in that group. Yeah. You know, obviously a guy who a lot of people were high on and had a lot of talent, but missed a long time before qualifying with injuries and wasn't a consistent player on the club level. How many years was it? Ever? Was he ever a consistent player on the club level? Not really. Before this season? He was always struggling with injuries. He was showing flashes of his potential, but never consistent. So so we didn't really know what we were going to get from him. And I think it's tempting to go back and say, oh, of course, he he was good. He's a talented guy, right? But we didn't really know what he was going to be. He wasn't even at the first window because of injury, right? But he came in, and, and he's been good when he's been on the field and consistently impactful, dangerous, stretching the opposing defense. I think a guy who is an underrated leader and presence in that locker room. A glue guy um, for sure, right? Yeah. He's 21, but he's like really, really mature. Um, Super impressive in his availabilities. We only get a little bit of a window into these guys, but um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and make character judgments really on any of them, but uh, he seems very impressive, at least on the surface. So there's that. Um, So I would include him in that group. Um, Eunice Musa, I would as well. Um, you know, sort of similar to Aronson that his best games came in the earlier part of the cycle, in my opinion, um, and faded at times as we went. Um, but super young player, obviously a ton of talent. Like, he just looks different, man, than basically every other player on this team. Like him and Dest, they move differently to me than than almost everybody else. Uh, Reyna, I guess you could include in that group as well, but we didn't see much of him in qualifying. Um, and then Miles Robinson, you know, he was up and down. He was not perfect. 
he had some he had some tough moments in qualifying for sure um but for the most part did a really nice job in my opinion um but yeah for me i think adams zimmerman anthony robinson in that order top three performers for the u.s over the course of the octagonal and i would throw you know i would throw matt turner in the group as well in terms of you know he obviously had a big time gold cup right he'd been doing it in mls for a couple of years but he got thrown into the fire in a really significant way unexpectedly in that first window when Zach Steffen went down with those back spasms and he acquitted himself well, in my opinion, for the most part, apart from that one moment in Canada on the goal kick really. So yeah, those, those were kind of the highlights for me. And then actually one more Luca De La Torre did really well when he played. He didn't play a lot, but he did really yeah, well. Yeah, credit to him. Another guy who, kind of like Walker, was waiting for his moment, waiting for his opportunity, and when he got it, he he grabbed it. And then he got rewarded for it. Got got a start in the, in the most important game of the cycle. I mean, there were multiple of those, but Panama at home, a lot of pressure on, and he was, mm-hmm. he was in the starting lineup. On the other side of the coin, and I don't want to be too negative here, but I'm going to ask anyway. Are there guys that played a role in qualifying that you think, all right, maybe that's that? Yeah, I mean, Jordan Peefock, I don't expect to see in a U.S. uniform before the World Cup or during the World Cup. I'm not going to rule out any number nines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's Personally. fair, but I, I, I am going to rule him out, actually. I, I am. Okay. I just think that he lacks some of the soccering ability uh, and his movement, his ability to run and press is lacking compared to his counterparts and the people he's competing with. And the thing he brings to the table more than anyone is an ability to finish in the box. No one's really been doing that at the level and the consistency he has. And he got his chance in Mexico and he missed it. And I just think that it'll be tough for him to push himself back into the conversation for the top three. And I think as we've mentioned, this is a position where you might be looking at a couple other candidates in the summer to go along with, Ferreira and Pepe and, you know, potentially trying Gio Reyna as a false nine. So I think it'll be tough for him to kind of get in again. Whereas I think like a guy like Josh Sargent probably gets called in June, probably at, and Brandon Vasquez, that probably hurts Jordan P. Fox chances. Yeah, potentially. I'm not, like I said, I'm not ruling anything out in regards to that position. And I'm gonna stay. Do you, by do you have a guy who who's who's out on the outside now? I think Sebastian Lejet. I think the yeah, bell has fair. the bell has told. Um he played a big role, man. And like I don't think that should be minimized. I know he gets a lot of hate in the fan base. Um, but you know, didn't get called for the last window. And I think we have a pretty good read on what he is on the international level at this point. Um I also want to see more from John Luca Busio. He didn't impress me like really at all, apart from a few minutes against Costa Rica at home, I think. Um, and I think there are other na- number eights in the pool right now, uh, Georgi Mihalovic especially, that I would prefer to see over him. Um, I think Kellen Acosta is a number eight as an experiment that I don't really need to see a lot more of either, for that matter. Um, but he certainly has a place on this team as, as a number six and a backup to Adams. So... Um, those those are some I would throw Roldan into the mix is another guy that I would like to see uh you know maybe get more more run in some of those positions um whether it's as an eight or maybe on the wing but um yeah I think that's about it for me that makes sense are we forgetting anybody 
No, I think that's I think that's about right. All right. There you go. So it goes. Stay with us. We're coming back. One final segment. We're going to talk about the Portland Timbers, MLS's punishment of the club, and the Andy Polo situation. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Welder makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. We are back on Allocation Disorder, closing out this week's episode with some talk about a more serious, less fun, but necessary subject. Um, we spoke, geez, it was almost two months ago, Paul. Can you believe that? Um, when this story broke about Andy Polo and allegations of abuse from his separated wife, uh, Genesis Alarcon, um, and some interviews that she did on Peruvian television and the Timbers response or lack thereof, I suppose, um, in terms of the proper reporting. Uh, the league, of course, launched an investigation into all of that. Um, and last week, the day before the game against Costa Rica between the U.S. and Costa Rica, so last Tuesday, they announced their findings and their punishments. Um, the punishment is not very strict. It's $25,000 fine. And that's it. And that is all. Polo, of course, had his contract uh, terminated. I believe, from what I've been told, that there was a payout there. They can't unilaterally terminate a contract without, you know, an investigation happening first, which it did not at the time of the termination. So there was a buyout involved. Um, and then there were a lot of twists and turns that this took along the way. Um, the league did an investigation. They hired a law firm, Proskauer Rose LLP, um, that focused on two primary areas of concern in their investigation. First was whether the Timbers had indeed pressured Alarcon to decline to pursue criminal action against Polo. And second was whether the Timbers had intentionally failed to report the May incident, the May 2021 incident, the initial allegation of abuse when police were called and Timbers employees showed up at the house and all sorts of things happened, um, whether they intentionally failed to report that to the league office. Proskauer performed nine witness interviews, and I'm reading here from a write-up that our colleague Pablo Maurer did on the subject last week. Um, Timbers employees, Polo, Alarcon, and their respective lawyers, and they reviewed audio recordings provided by Alarcon and text messages, emails, and other relevant documents provided by the Timbers. This ended in a, I think it was a five-page report made by the law firm. Um, and as to the first question, despite a recording that Alarcon released in which Polo's lawyer said, you know, that they would prefer that she didn't press charges, the investigation found no evidence suggesting that the club had pressured Alarcon to decline to pursue charges against Andy Polo. Um, and again, I'm just reading from Pablo's story here. So, you know, bear with me. The summary of the investigation also addresses the short audio recording made in June 2021 of a meeting between Alarcon and Polo's lawyer, which I had just mentioned. Um, Polo's lawyer, who was retained by the Timbers for his use, uh, uh, seemed to suggest that the club would prefer Alarcon not to pursue charges. That clip was tweeted by Alarcon's lawyer, but the clip notably ends immediately after that statement, potentially lacking important context. And this is from the Proskauer Rose summary of the investigation. In reviewing the entirety of the recording, which is approximately 55 minutes long, the investigators found this, this expert was taken out of context and did not accurately capture the overall substance of the meeting, as described above. It goes on to say the primary focus of the meeting was to discuss the assistance that the club could provide to Miss Alarcon, suggest suggestions on how Miss Alarcon could become less dependent on Mr. Polo. Though Polo's lawyer did raise the charges against Mr. Polo and inquired as to whether Miss Alarcon intended to pursue them, this came after the discussions about how the Timbers could help Miss Alarcon, including seeking to ensure that Mr. Polo provide funds for the family. 
The lawyer's statement that she was, quote, hoping Ms. Alarcon did not pursue the charges was made after Ms. Alarcon indicated that she did not want to pursue the charges. On the recording, the lawyer stated explicitly that the decision whether to pursue the charges was entirely up to Ms. Alarcon. So that's the first item. They found that basically the Timbers did not pressure her to not pursue charges. The second, whether or not they failed to report the incident to the league office. As Pablo and I reported way back two months ago, they did not report it to the league office properly, um, something that they were required to do immediately based on the MLS constitution and the SABH policy. Um, at the time, it was unclear whether the Timbers had done that as part of a cover-up or as base, basically just because they were incompetent. The investigation found basically because they were incompetent. A lack of understanding of the MLS constitution was the exact wording rather than an intent to conceal the incident. That is what they were punished for. That was what the fine was for, for the $25,000 for that incompetence. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I got the facts out there. Hopefully I did. I would encourage you guys to go actually read the literature on the subject on this one, because there may be a few things that I'm leaving out. Hopefully not. Um, but Paul, this was, uh, I remember when I got this news on Tuesday, um, and, and we were sitting at a table together in the hotel in Costa Rica, putting together a U.S. story. And I told you, and I mean, our first reaction was like, what? $25,000. That's it. That's what we're doing here. So, I mean, let's just dive into it, man. What, what do you think about this whole thing? I think it's lacking in seriousness to properly punish a team for their actions that I think were negligent and inappropriate at best. The I didn't know I couldn't do that defense is not a good one. Straight out of the Chappelle skit, right? Straight out of Chappelle show. Like if, if inner Miami, if Jorge Moss had gone to the league and been like, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Would it have been less of a fine for breaking the roster rules? Considering that this is breaking the rules of the SABH program and the constitution because Miami was fined two plus million in allocation money. Jorge Moss was fined $250,000. Paul McDonough lost his job. And that was for breaking roster rules. It's not a, it's not a perfect comparison, obviously. But when that, when that happened, it was framed in a way of this is a, this punishment will serve as a deterrent for others in the league to not do what all of the GMs and sporting directors said that they do, which is cheat the roster rules. Using that as a precedent to how the league thinks about, at, at bare minimum, thinks about some of their punishments, there is no way $25,000 fine serves as, as a deterrent for any team to choose not to report a domestic violence incident to the league when they're supposed to. And that's what stood out to me. Like, this is not a deterrent. This isn't going to, this isn't holding the Timbers accountable for failing to do what they are obligated to do under the constitution of the league. And that's why I was so stunned by it because yeah. you, you have to hold people accountable for failing to do what's written in the rules. And they did it once a year ago and they didn't do it here. And I felt like that that punishment was far short of what it could have and probably should have been. Yeah. And, you know, there's been some accounting out there that the Timbers did some things to take care of Genesis Alarcone before and after this incident happened. 
I, it's hard to know exactly what went down. Um, it's hard to know the intentions. Uh, we basically only have the investigation in front of us at this point. Um, I would agree with everything you just said. I think the failure to report should have been a bigger deal than a $25,000 fine. Um, even if the Timbers took matters into their own hands and behaved entirely appropriately, which I'm not sure is a fair benefit of the doubt to extend to that organization, Mm -hmm. given everything that's gone on in their history. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's just give it to them for the purposes of this exact moment of this conversation. Even if they did everything else properly, I think $25,000 is too light for this. You know, this is a potentially serious situation. And not potentially serious. It is a serious situation that could have potentially gotten more serious. Right. And the SABH policy and reporting things to the league, that's there for a reason. And the reason is to protect people, to protect the alleged victim, to get the alleged abuser into a situation where he can hopefully learn and, you know, amend and change his behavior and become a better person. Um, And those protocols were not activated. Right. And even if the Timbers put Polo out of the situation and, you know, according to the, to the statement and, and the report, you know, it seems like he left the family home and all of those things. So he wasn't there, but even if they did that, you know, there's still potential for this to go sideways. And if you're not putting them in the right rehabilitation programs and you're not getting them the right treatment and the right therapy, then you're not doing everything you could to prevent that situation from getting potentially worse or happening again and abuse happening again and things getting potentially dangerous for the woman and the children for Genesis Alarcon and, and, and the children that she shares with Andy Polo. And, and that to me, that's, I mean, it's obviously super problematic, but like just report it. It's there to help you as a club. Right. And I think this is an attitude that we see Paul from the Timbers I think it's an attitude we see from a decent number of MLS clubs, not in situations like these, but say in situations regarding the roster rules, right? It's, oh, we know better. Let's not report it to the league. The league doesn't know what they're doing. They're just going to come in and mess stuff up, right? And I think the Timbers maybe took that attitude in regards to this situation. And if you want to take that in regards to the roster rules, okay, whatever. It's harmless, really, at the end of the day. It's not a serious thing in terms of life and how people experience and pain and potential physical danger, emotional danger, right? This is though, this checks those boxes. And so if the club did indeed say, all right, we're not going to report to the league because we think we can handle it better, which I don't know that to be true, but that's sort of my read of the situation. That's highly inappropriate, highly inappropriate and deserving of way more than a $25,000 fine. And I think it's pretty ridiculous that that's it. I mean, there was a choice here not to report it because even if you know whether it's the rule or not, I mean, you, you like, have you have to consider that there are two options. You either tell yeah. the league something happened or you don't, right? Whether yeah. you know it's a rule or not. And there was a choice not to tell the league, and the and choice dude, was so it's that it's not that hard. It's, it's not that hard to know it's a rule. Like right. like we didn't know it explicitly when this stuff came out, but we remember the Will Johnson situation in Orlando. We remember the Jesse Gonzalez situation in Dallas. Sam, we have a copy of the MLS Constitution, and if we have a copy of the MLS Constitution, so did the lawyers at the Portland Timbers organization. So, so, so really the not, owners, and so and they the also have a, they also the have a telephone to pick up and ask the league, and yeah. they didn't. And and so to me, it's not a sufficient excuse that you didn't know the rules again. And let me tell you something, the way the world works in this country, 
and and elsewhere as well. But I'll I'll speak to this country a little bit more. When you're in a domestic abuse situation, there is a feeling that you are helpless. That the the systems as they are set up are insufficient to protect you, mm-hmm. and that even calling the police or getting a restraining order or whatever it may be are not going to truly protect you and that you are alone. And whatever was happening with the Timbers, helping get him out of the house or whatever the assistance they were offering, I think the just the mention of we hope you do not press charges. Yeah, regardless of what it was followed by on that right, date. Speaks to that feeling of being alone and of understanding what the priority, what at least one priority was. And I think that we have to keep in mind the helplessness and the the dependence, the dependence and the feeling, the, the, the fear of feeling like you don't have help. A choice. Yeah. You don't have an out. You don't have what you need to protect you. And that, by not reporting things to the league, by not allowing the processes to happen as they're meant to happen to protect those people was essentially creating that helplessness for 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 those adding to it anyway. adding to it certainly or, or, or eliminating contributing it to it right yeah. so yeah it it's just not sufficient it's not okay and i think it also to me in totality this whole thing maybe to sum it up a little bit i thought the response from mls has been the wrong one from the jump i thought don garber's comments supporting Merritt Paulson and Hank Paulson in the middle of the the investigation investigation had even run its course was inappropriate Mm -hmm. and was, I mean, no inappropriate is the right word. It was wholly inappropriate. And I think it shined a light on the fact that at the end of the day, Don Garber works for the owners and to come out and, and, and vocally put his support behind those owners while the investigation was about to start was essentially in my mind, undermining whatever the investigation was going to find. Adding to that, um, this law firm, Proskauer Rose, Sebi Salazar had a really good thread uh, of ESPN and Football Americas on this. Uh, this. This is a law firm that has a long-standing business relationship with MLS, decades long. I believe they worked on the expansion agreement to put the Timbers into the league when they before they joined in 2011. You know, and no investigation in which one party is hiring another party and paying them money to do with the investigation for them is truly independent. It's just not like, that's just like not how it can work. And I think it's important to point those things out as well, that MLS can say this was an independent investigation, but there is a business relationship and everyone is aware of that business relationship. And presumably the law firm wants that to continue in the future. And that colors things. It does, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Um, So that's part of this. As well, I also want to point out that Garber statement. I thought there was a part of it that was telling. And this was his season opening press conference. And I think one of us asked the question. I can't remember if it was me or you. It was you, you Sam. I was still on the Like, his response was he led with Hank Paulson. Not Merritt Paulson. Hank Paulson. Merritt is obviously the face. He's the CEO. He's the owner. Um, Hank is his father, right? Obviously the former big-time government figure. Um in the economic crisis in 08 and 09 in particular, Goldman Sachs guy, um, he's sort of the money behind the operation. And 
Garber led with Hank Paulson and his faith in Hank Paulson and how involved Hank Paulson is on League Matters. And later he got to merit and the faith that he has in merit. But I thought that was telling as well and could potentially have ramifications for how that organization kind of moves uh, in the future, in my opinion. Um, so we'll see what that shapes up to be. But I think it's, uh, I thought it was an inadequate response myself. It's hard to know exactly because frankly, Paul, we don't have all of the facts, um, but we do have some of them. And the Timbers knew, and they did not do what they were supposed to do at the time that this incident happened. Um, and 25000 for that doesn't seem like a punishment that fits the crime, in my opinion, for all the reasons that we just laid out. So, anyway, is there anything else you want to add on that subject? No, I think we've summed it up. I Certainly how we feel. I still don't... I still am surprised by what the punishment was, and, and yeah. I, don't, I don't know that that'll change. Yeah, I don't think it ever will for me. Um, but perhaps we should, uh, I don't know, maybe this will j- leave us a little jaded going forward if a situation ever happens like this again. Hopefully it doesn't, but the way the world works, it probably will. Um, hopefully the teams at least report it moving forward. Um, all right. Well, on that note, this has been Allocation Disorder. Thanks for sticking with us. Long episode, covered a lot of ground. Um, I enjoyed it for the most part. Uh, you know, at the end, we had to say some things that we needed to say so thanks for sticking with us this long i am sam he is paul and we'll be back next week with another episode of allocation disorder as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.